I always encourage those who are reading scripture to um, really put themselves in the text, because just like Leanne did, and and uh, it's it it always m- makes it come alive for yourself. If you're able to put yourself in the text, if you're like, what was Habakkuk really feeling in the midst of that time? Israel was in Bab- in exile, and uh, they were really crying out to God, like, why wouldn't you vindicate us? Why won't you set us free? Um, and and the Lord answered. Um, and in Galatians and uh, in Ephesians, uh, Paul is thanking God for the heart of love that the church in Ephesus had. How many times are we grateful for the passion and the spirit that we see in other people towards God? And do we do we work well to edify that? What we're really the, the the Bible is all about. Where is our perspective? Is our perspective propelled by the Holy Spirit and God? Or is it distracted and, and, and rooted in other things? And that's really the core. Uh, so if we can put ourselves in the Bible, if we can put ourselves in the text, it really does come alive to us. Well, I wanted to uh, read from um, Luke chapter 6 today. We're going to read, uh, Matthew has what's called the Sermon on the Mount. And Luke has the Sermon on the Plain. So Luke and Matthew, he's on a mountain giving this sermon. But in Luke, he's in the middle of a field. And so there's, there's the disciples and a large crowd of people around him. And this is Luke chapter 6. And so his popularity is gaining momentum in all of the valley of, of Galilee. And so this, this passage, Luke chapter 6, we're going to look at verses 20 through 31. And if you're able, would you stand in honor of the gospel reading this morning? Luke chapter 6, 20 through 31. Listen to these words uh, from Jesus. Jesus raised his eyes to his disciples and said, Happy are you who are poor, because God's kingdom is yours. Happy are you who hunger now, because you will be satisfied. Happy are you who weep now, because you will laugh. Happy are you when people hate you, reject you, insult you, and condemn your name as evil because of the human one, Jesus. Rejoice when that happens. Leap for joy because you have a great reward in heaven. Their ancestors did the same thing to the prophets. But how terrible for you who are rich because you have already received your comfort. How terrible for you who have plenty now because you will be hungry. How terrible for you who laugh now because you will mourn and weep. How terrible for you when all speak well of you. Their ancestors did the same things to the false prophets. But I say to you who are willing to hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on the cheek, offer the other one as well. If someone takes your coat, don't withhold your shirt either. Give to everyone who asks and don't demand your things back from those who take them. This is the written word of the Lord for God's people. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now, we can all admit, just starting right off, that's a hard teaching. Can I get an amen? That's a hard teaching. When I first read the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain here in Luke, I really thought that this is what Jesus was talking about in a in a eschatological sense. When Jesus comes back, blessed are those who are poor, for they'll be vindicated, right? 
or, or, and, and woe to those who are rich because you're going to have everything taken from you when Christ returns. I thought it was a far-off reality, right? But what do we read in Luke? We read that the kingdom of God has come in Jesus Christ. So Jesus, this is Luke chapter 6, and Jesus has stated all the way through already, the kingdom of God has come through Jesus Christ. It is present in the body of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is working to usher in what we now call the church, a new people, a covenant people that is unified so deeply with the heart of God that we are out doing the mission of God in the world, that the gospel is what defines us. So when he's giving a sermon, he's talking about very present realities. Blessed are the poor, for the kingdom of God is theirs. Blessed are those who are hungry now, for they will be filled now. <laughs> and we're going to get to the woe parts, like how terrible it is for you. The, the common English kind of waters that, that down a little bit. Other translations like the King James Bible is doomed are you. Doomed are you who are rich, or, or woe be upon you who are rich. I've heard that one as well. We're going to get into what it means to, to, to be blessed and what it means to have woe, what, what Jesus is contrasting here. But just like any Bible, just like any passage, the context matters. And I want an amen for that. Because if the context doesn't matter, then a context turns into a pretext and we can do whatever we want with a pretext, right? Because it becomes our perspective rather than what was happening in that very real world. Jesus was standing in a very real place talking to very real people at a very real point in time. So we need to understand what Jesus is saying in that point so we can apply it to our lives today. That's good theology right there. <laughs> And so Jesus is standing there talking to um, 80% of, of the people in first century Palestine were just in poverty, right? And so he's come to bring, what's his mission statement from Isaiah? Behold, I have come to bring good news to the poor, right? And so Jesus is talking about this spectrum between the deeply impoverished and the wealthy, and you see him go on that whole spectrum through this sermon. Blessed are the poor, blessed are the hungry, blessed are those who can't afford clothes, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be made happy. And then he goes, terrible it is for you who are rich and who are satisfied, who, who do have food, who do have enough clothes, for you will be hungry, you will mourn. Woe to you if you are laughing now, for you will begin to cry. So we have to ask, what is Jesus trying to get at here with this whole spectrum between poverty and wealth that he is preaching about here on this Sermon on the Plain? Well, I, I think a, a good starting point is always, all, all, the Greek is always a good starting point. English really makes me uncomfortable in this one as well because we have translated this Greek word as, in a very churchy way, it's become blessed. Blessed are you. Um, if you walk up to a homeless person who is poor and said, blessed are you, for the kingdom of God is yours, and then walk away, what does that even mean? Do you think you'll go far with them, right? And we're going to get into the woe as well. What if you go up to the rich person and say, woe be upon you for your wealth? It's not really going to 
go far with them either. It's not going to build relationships with them, right? So we really have to understand what's being said here. And I think a better translation of Markios, which is what we translate as blessed, is unburdened, satisfied. Because it is a present tense word. You know who brings release of burdens to the poor? Jesus Christ. And who, who is now called to unburden the poor? The church. Right? So this new people that he is building a covenant with, the, the covenant of the church, blessed are the poor for you will be, the kingdom of God will be yours now. Because I've called a people together that is not going to let anyone go hungry or go without. Their needs will be met. When we see the birth of the church in Acts, what does it say? What does it say in, in Acts? It says, we gathered together as the church and no one in the church said, this is mine. That's in the Bible. That's hugely convicting for me because I have a lot of things. I say, this is mine, and this is mine, and this, I, I own a lot of things, right? But they gathered together and they shared all they had so that no one, it says in Acts, no one went without. So the church is called to a very different way of living in the world. We are called to a completely countercultural reality where no one goes hungry, everyone's needs are met, and the mourning are made happy <laughs> by those who have been called to pursue the gospel in the world. So unburdened are you who are poor, for the kingdom of God is yours and the church is here to bring the kingdom of God near to you. Unburdened are you who are hungry, for you will be fed. Jesus is not talking about some far-off reality, but he's talking about the commission and the mission of the church in the world, where the hungry are fed. Are you with me this morning? The hungry are fed and the poor are taken care of. The, the, those who mourn, those who cry now, will be made happy because of the brothers and sisters of Christ Jesus. The very real reality of the gospel. I, I love my relationship with Jesus Christ. And honestly, after traveling to Africa in the Congo and Rwanda and seeing all of those little orphans come out, I was there all summer in July once, and we were teaching, we were training pastors who would walk up to 50 miles to come to class. And they slept on just in the streets. They didn't have anything, but we trained over 250 pastors. The first ordained woman was in my class that was in the Congo and in Rwanda. And, and it was just an incredible life-changing experience. I went to teach, but I learned way more than I came to teach. <laughs> Those little orphans who came out who had absolutely nothing, but their joy was out of this world. The connection they had, the relationship they had with, with each other, was something that I craved so deeply. We here in the United States, the richest country in the world, we feel like we've got good connectivity. We feel like we're the most connected. But oftentimes, technology divides us so much. And in Africa, they know how to do relationships. They're, they're so advanced in relationships. They have a saying, and I've said it before, it's Ubuntu, I am because we are. Boy, that's a perfect phrase for the church. I am because we are the body of Christ. My identity is found primarily in Christ Jesus our Lord. I am because we are in the body of Christ. And, I, and I, I left 
Rwanda and, 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 uh, and the Congo feeling. You know, I can have all the warm, fuzzy feelings of Jesus. I can have incredible experiences. But if my relationship with Jesus isn't unburdening the poor, if my relationship with Jesus isn't making hungry people fed, am I really where Jesus is at work right now, today? Because it, it's a shocking understanding when, when my worldview was broken and understood the way in which Cambodia and Myanmar and Thailand and, and the Congo and Rwanda, how they lived in utter poverty. If the kingdom of God has come near and, and the poor inherit the kingdom of God, shouldn't we be where the kingdom of God is at work? Because Jesus is among the work of the poor, unburdening the poor. And so my experience with Jesus Christ needs to result. We, our relationship with God is so important, but the fruit of it is making hungry people full, tending to the mourning and making them happy again, healing our sick brothers and sisters who are, who are in the midst of trouble themselves, no matter where they are in this spectrum of poverty to wealth. Every human being needs the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Amen? no matter where they are. But we're not going to understand that unless we start first and foremost in seeking the kingdom of God. And we're going to get more into that in a little bit, but I just want to highlight a few people this morning. Um, Don Smart works with a, uh, he volunteers for a suicide prevention uh, program where people can call in if they're, they're on the brink. Um, and he has, he has an incredible heart to help people who are in the midst of crisis um, and he coaches football as well, which he ne I need to be coached in football myself. Um, but he, he has an incredible ministry and heart for people who are caught in the midst of crisis. Andrea works for Love, Inc., uh, sees uh, hungry families on a daily basis. And Love, Inc. is an incredible organization. They not, not only feed hungry people, but they get people out of perpetual debt as well. It is an incredible program. We have Diana Herzog, who comes here to the church every single week and helps hungry families. Almost 12 a month we help in, in through our food bank. And your tithes, when, when, we, when we come together and tithe, that's us sharing our resources so that no one goes hungry, right? So that no one goes without their needs being met. And so Diana comes and serves in that way. Cheryl Haney is a chaplain at St. Luke's, and she has stories that she can't even share because of confidentiality, but she is there at the bedside when people are at their greatest moments of fear, greatest moments of, of death and turmoil and despair, and she has a ministry of presence in St. Luke's. We have people in the midst who are actively working to unburden the poor, who are actively working to satisfy those who are mourning. And I want to brag on my fiance as well. She's a She's a hairdresser, and so many people, I hear, I'm just incredibly proud of her because people come and sit down in her chair, and she has their, their, their attention for over two hours sometimes, you know, two hours in a chair. I don't know if I could sit there for that long, but uh, she, <laughs> but I hear stories countless times where she's able to pray with them, where they just open up and start pouring out her heart, and she can't you know, it's kind of dangerous because then tears fill her eyes and she's got scissors, you know. Um, but she's there to, to, to really minister to them as well. It's not just a job for her. When you're seeking the kingdom of God first, everything you do is a ministry. 
When you're seeking the the kingdom of God first, you're always asking this question, how is this resulting in in having the Holy Spirit prompt me and propel me to the people in my immediate surroundings? This is not just a job for me. This is a ministry. My money, all of the possessions that I have, how are these things helping to advance the kingdom of God? (laughs) That's what we're supposed to be asking. So we'll move to the to the second Greek word, the the word that's often uh, translated as cursed or unhappy, and it doesn't mean these things. Woe to you! Um, it it certainly doesn't mean damned, which some uh, translations translate it to, but it's more of an intention getter, an emotion setter, than a clear characterization or pronouncement. Not all rich people are damned. Okay, I just want to clear that out. That's not what Jesus is saying here. It's more like one of my favorite English words, yikes. Like when someone comes up to me and invites me to a Taylor Swift concert. Yikes, right? Did I just make some enemies there? (laughs) It's more be aware. Understand the world in which you live. Because Jesus is having a warning to those whose needs are met. Because what's so easy when our needs are met is that we find our security in those things. When we have never had to worry about where our next meal comes from, we find immense security in that reality. And some of us never will have to worry about that. Thanks be to God. <laughs> but then when, when, uh, when, When Jesus comes along and says, beware, how terrible for you who are rich because you have already received your comfort. Essentially, Jesus is saying, are you finding all of your comfort in your wealth? Woe to you if you do that. (laughs) If you find all your security and your comfort in your wealth instead of the kingdom of God? Yikes. How many times have we seen CEOs at the top of the ladder lose everything because of a stock market flux? Or those who are in the greatest positions of power get overthrown because the people didn't like the kind of power that they were wielding? Don't put your security in those things or or always having the latest fashion or always having food in the refrigerator or always being happy. Sometimes I feel like there, there are those in, in our culture who, if they are not happy, if they go through even a moment of struggle, the whole world is falling apart. You know how I know that? I was one of those people. Whenever any, any blip in my plans came along, the whole world starts falling apart. Because why? My security was things staying happy. Is that the way life works? No. So woe to us. <laughs> Yikes. If, if our security, our, our comfort is found in things perpetually staying good, staying happy, if we always have money in the bank. And I got to be honest with you. I put money for the first time. I was able to put some money in a retirement fund uh, at the beginning of this year. And it, it felt like a burden was being lifted. You know why? Because I have money that's, that's now growing in, in, a, in a stock. I never thought a homeschooler would be able to do that, you know. But I have money in a stock that's growing for retirement, and it's an unburdening feeling because I have something that's going to accumulate for my security, my financial security. And that's not wrong. What is wrong is to put all of my security, all of my trust in what I can do with my wealth, 
What is wrong is putting all of my comfort into perpetually having a meal. To put all of my comfort in things staying happy. You can't be a pastor one day and have everything stay happy, okay? At one point, I can have a praise report on the phone as I'm on the way to the hospital and someone in crisis. That is my typical day. I went through Dutch Bros the other day, and if you want a contrast reality, I went through Dutch Bros drive-thru. I wasn't even planning on preaching on this, but here we go. Went through Dutch Bros drive-thru, and you know how they, like, jump in your car? <laughs> they're like, oh, my gosh! I'm so happy to be alive! And I'm like, you've had way too much caffeine already. But this person, like, got into my car, you know, and they're just, they're just so charismatic, and they're so, they're so happy, right? And I'm just like, just give me my coffee. I should have gotten a Starbucks. But she's like, what are you off doing this morning? And I said, I'm, I'm on my way to officiate a funeral. And they're like, our coffee's on us today. <laughs> Gave you a free coffee. But oftentimes we live in this world where our lives can't include sadness and struggle. And here's where things get really, really dicey. What if Jesus needed everything to stay happy? Would we even be here today? What if Jesus didn't want to put up with those who didn't look the way that he did because they didn't have the money to afford the latest fashion, to afford the, the latest look? So often we apply a morality to the way people look. So often we apply a morality to a person's economic level. We pl- apply a good morality to those who are wealthy, just automatically. And those who are poor, oftentimes we say, well, what choices did they make to get there? Right? You've all heard that before. Jesus doesn't do that. <laughs> Jesus has called for a radically different kingdom to take hold of a people called the church and live out lives unburdening the poor and not putting their comfort in temporary earthly things, but seeking first the kingdom of God. Do you hear me this morning? And so Jesus closes with, with a really good theology of love. And I tell my theology students, I teach theology at, at NNU, and I'm in the middle of, of, of class right now, and we're getting to the point to where, what is theology? Is theology just a mental exercise, like making sure we have the right Christian beliefs? And, and I'm, I'm just so on fire that theology is not just an organization of mental beliefs. Theology shapes everything that we are in the church. How you see God determines your choices. Who you believe God to be is how you're going to treat human beings. Because human beings, what? Are created in the image of that God you claim to worship. So who you say that God is, is going to shape the way that you treat one another. So theology is worship. Songs help with worship, but it's not everything. Prayer helps with worship, but it's not everything. Communion is the center of our worship as the gathered body of Christ. But if we don't have a good theology, will we even understand what we're doing when we come to this table? No. It all is birthed out of a relationship, a close, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, so that when we know Christ, we are changed by Christ, and then we change this world for Christ. So theology is who we are. What we believe about God matters deeply because then it even shapes the way that we read the Bible. 
And I tell my students all the time who are under this assumption that theology doesn't matter or that they don't have a theology because they are atheist. I have some atheists in my class, and I just said, your theology is in terms of God's non-existence. That's still a theology. Because the word theology just means study of the divine, study of God. Or simply put, it's God talk. How do you talk about God? You talk about God in terms of non-existence. While theists, Christians, talk about God in terms of existence. The Bible just assumes it. In the beginning, God. There's no talk about where God came from or the origins of God. We don't get an origin story for God. Genesis just starts out, in the beginning, God. Just assumes it. And so we Christians need to understand what is it that we say about God, which is why we have hundreds and hundreds of years of working over doctrine over and over and over again. Because who we say God is matters. Because Jesus asks us this question, who is it that you say that I am? And how we answer that question shapes the way that we live our life. So he ends with this theology of who we are to be in the church in in verse uh, 27. Let me just read that for us one more time. But I say to you who are willing to hear. So Jesus has just talked about people on all ends of the spectrum from poverty to wealth. Blessed are you who are poor. Be careful those who find their comfort in total wealth. And then he addresses the crowd. But I say to you who are willing to hear. Those who are willing to answer the call of the church. Those who are willing to follow me into this brand new reality of the covenanted people of the church. Those who are willing to hear. And he doesn't pull any punches. The very first thing he says is to love your enemies. Wow. That's where we start. Is enemy love. How many of you have mastered that yet? Sometimes I think, okay, I, I'm going to air my pastor, pastor's heart here. Don't hold it against me. When I hear Christians that today arguing over whether or not we should celebrate Halloween, with all of the things that are going on in the world, and this is what I see on social media, so many people wondering and arguing over if we should celebrate Halloween, my mind goes to this verse. Have we got enemy love figured out yet? Because if I'm going to make a list of priorities, I would think loving our enemies should be at the top and Halloween is some way way down here. Because you know what you're doing? You're making enemies out of people who celebrate Halloween. That to me says we haven't got enemy love figured out yet. So how are we loving our enemies well? And then Jesus doesn't pull any punches any further. He keeps adding to it. Do good to those who hate you. Wow. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on the cheek, offer the other one as well. Wow. Now, to me, I've always had that told to me that um, we're gluttons for punishment. When non-Christians read that verse, they're like, yeah, you can get away with anything with Christians because you slap their cheek and they're just going to turn the other one and you, you don't really, they're not real, they're wimps, right? When 
Jesus took the cross, so we're not called to be wimps, okay? And Jesus called us to take up and bear our crosses, so we're not wimps. We're called to be peacemakers, which is often called wimpy by the world. The way that I, Ben Kramer's interpretation of turn the other cheek, and this is a funny metaphor, but I'm going to go with it. It's like showing up to a death metal concert wanting country music. Christians don't want to live their lives defined by violence. And so when they're met with violence, they're just like, what? I'm going to turn the other cheek because this is not the reality I'm expecting. I am not expecting this reality of violence. In fact, I'm going to pursue peace. Turning the other cheek is not retaliating in violence, but answering in peace. It's not, we're not wanting to be shaped by a world of violence. The church is not called to violence. The church is called to be peacemakers. And before we think that peace is wimpy like the world does, Jesus was busy working towards peace. Bringing sight to the blind is a peaceful work. Restoring hearing to the deaf. Do you know what, what the best way to eradicate war in the world? Take care of the poor. Because violence and crime escalates when poverty escalates. Do you see how real world this sermon is? If we take care of the poor and feed the hungry in all of the world, we would see an eradication of violence and war because there's nothing that people need to grab for when everyone's needs are met. And I have to tell you, <laughs> the gospel brings a power that earthly governments have been trying to conceal and co-opt for their own means since the dawn of human civilization. And you know what? The church has existed for 2,000 years. Name one earthly government that has lasted that long. Tell me. We have a really good track record. Why? Because we surrender to the reality of the gospel rather than trying to co-opt the gospel for our own power structures in the world. Because why? We're pursuing the kingdom of God, which is the greatest power the world has ever seen. And the martyrs say, when you kill one martyr in church history, a thousand Christians take their place. So good luck bringing violence against us because the church only explodes under, under persecution. That is our history because we are not a people of violence. We are a people of peace. History doesn't lie, folks. The reason we're worshiping in this building today, 2,000 years after Jesus walked out of that tomb alive, is because we have inherited a gospel of power that brings peace to the world. If someone takes your coat, don't withhold your shirt either. Give to everyone who asks, and don't demand your things back from those who take them. I want to end with, who's, who's a, I know, I know Alec and Jess are, but who likes music theater? Wow, no one. Okay, good. Have you read or, or seen Les Mis ever? One of the most powerful displays of this sort of generosity in that play starts at the beginning. Jean Valjean has been in prison, the prison system for most of his adult life. 
and a priest who lives in the parsonage next to a church, I know what that reality's like, brings him in and takes care of him. And then in the middle of the night, because he thinks his world has been shaped so much by anxiety and fear of other people that he starts to rob the priest, fills a bag in the middle of the night and breaks a window and flees. Well, the police catch him right then and pulls out all of the priest's things and lays them on the ground. And just when the, the police are going to handcuff him, the priest comes out with two solid silver candlesticks and says, what are you doing harassing my brother? He forgot these two solid silver candlesticks. And the police left, and he was no longer being arrested for a crime. The priest turned around and said, if you're so desperate to steal things you must need so deeply, I'm going to meet that need out of what God has given me put the solid silver candlesticks in his bag and sent him on his way. And that priest became a close friend of his throughout the rest of that saga. When people steal, God's people assume they must need very deeply that they come from a brokenness. And we're not going to get upset at a human being for stealing things. We're going to see it as an opportunity to heal and restore and bring redemption because things are temporary, God's kingdom is eternal. So how do we treat those who mistreat us? We see it as an opportunity to forgive. How do we see those who take from us? We see it as an opportunity to respond in generosity. The message translation, I love this. The message translation says, love your enemies. Don't let them bring the worst out of you. Let them bring out your best. That's a response. Love those who insult you because life isn't a popularity contest. Life is a truth contest. How are we going to follow the truth in Jesus Christ? I want to call you to prayer right now. Uh, and maybe you trust the person next to you really well, but there's, there's two ends of the spectrum here. Maybe you're seeking to be unburdened by something today. Maybe you're looking for relief or happiness in an area of, of hunger or relationship or finances. God hears those needs. And so maybe you need to pray for those things. And it would honor me if you wanted to come to the altar and pray with me over that reality. Or maybe you find yourself seeking security in other things, and that was what was challenging to you in Christ's sermon. I want you to be able to pray over those things as well because we're called to pray towards our faithfulness in Christ Jesus. And I'm going to have Alec play uh, just a little bit of music here while we pray, but if you want prayer over that as well, I'll be here at the altar. But let's bow our heads and close our eyes and pray over this reality of where we find our hope and security. Lord Jesus, we ask you right now, would you reveal those things that are burdening our hearts? And bring release to us, Lord God. Would you unburden our hearts from those concerns and let us lay them at the foot of your throne.